This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and we're heading to the nightclub. Uh, Coming up on today's episode of the podcast, we are talking about moving the capital out of London. Is that a good idea? We've got some exclusive polling. But as part of that, we were chatting to Lisa Nandy, Labour's shadow levelling up secretary. And she said one of the things she's really looking at to try and sort of revive towns, revive a sense of community, is your hometown nightclub. Once you start thinking about it, everyone's got memories of their hometown nightclub. So we've been talking about that a lot today on the show. Uh, and so we'll hear from Lisa Nandy on that. But uh, we'll also discuss it with our columnist panel. No Finkelvich this week because Danny Finkelstein it was away. So instead, joined by uh, David Wanovich and Matthew Paris. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, normally on a Tuesday we'd have Finkelvich, but uh, David and I, uh, uh, Danny Finkelstein isn't here. Uh, he had a late night in Big Fellas uh, <laughs> nightclub. Uh, so instead, uh, we've got David Ivanovich as normal. Morning, David. <laughs> Actually, he's told me that he's uh, calculating the values of, of central defenders over at Chelsea. <laughs> no, seriously, that's what he's doing. I think he's got, he's actually, he, he, as as we know, he's now taken over Chelsea along with this uh, multi-billionaire and so on. So it's the biggest train set a kid ever had in his life. And he is actually sitting there doing the kind of, you know, think tank thing on central defenders that Chelsea might want to buy, I believe. There we are, crunching the numbers, crunching the numbers. Joining uh, David Amonovich this morning is Matthew Paris. Morning, Matthew. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, either of you want to share your nightclub memories as we um, we look back on uh, the importance of hometown nightclubs? Oh, I used to go to gay nightclubs, uh, and they were they were also uh, pretty grotty, blacked-out windows and... When you came out, you, you uh, as it were, of the nightclub, you were, you were, you sort of looked, you looked up and down the street to see if the, there was anyone there who might recognise you coming out, and likewise, going in. There was one in Stoke-on-Trent that I went to with my friend Jeremy, and um, we got to the door, and the the bouncer said uh, to Jeremy, "Do you realise what kind of a nightclub this is?" And Jeremy said, "Yes, yes, yeah, we know, we know. It's a it, it's a gay nightclub." And the bouncer said, "Okay, come in." But next time he said, "Would you mind mincing a bit?" <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, I just remembered. I first met you in a nightclub. 
Um, I think I've told you we've just <laughs> really? discussed. Yes, in Taunton. Uh, oh, that's right. Some yes. friends. You, know, you don't remember meeting me. We were very excited that Matthew Paris had come to Taunton. So, um, uh, a, a, a sister of one of my mates organised an event in Taunton for World AIDS Day, and we were that's to- right. We were told they were trying to get Kylie Minogue. And when I got they, there, they got me. They'd got <laughs> you and Jackie Ballard, I think. The local That's right. <laughs> you know, this is all like this, this entire exchange is like something like uh, from Round the Horn. Um, <laughs> Go on, then, David. David, I can't work out. Are you? Are you? An, are you a clubber? No, no, I never was a clubber. I'm a bit like my my brother Ben, who is this uh, quite a successful fantasy, very successful fantasy writer. Now. And I once said to him. Um, all that time you spent doing Dungeons and Dragons, I said, you know, that, what does that feel like now? And he said, uh, uh, what I really regretted from when I was young was spending all that time in nightclubs. I hated nightclubs. I wish I'd spent more time doing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I kind of feel a bit like that, really. I mean, I did once go to heaven. I can't remember, Matthew, whether we went with you um, or whether it was before on, on Weekend World or whether it was in the Brian Walden days. And we actually took Brian Walden to, uh, to heaven. But by, but, by the t- but by the time I could afford to go to nightclubs, I was already kind of an early, an early night man. I love the idea of Brian Walden in heaven, sort of, you know, <laughs> taking his forensic approach to questioning while at the bar. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to talk me through all of the drinks before I get to the conclusion of which drink I'm going to have. Uh, One last (laughs) recollection, Uh, Matt, that that Taunton thing. Yeah. uh, They wanted it to be sort of um, glitzy. Yes. And and so they, they... I arrived by train, uh, standard class, of course, but they sent a stretched white Cadillac to fetch me <laughs> yes, from I the railway was, station. Yeah, I was picked up from it by a by a stretch limo in Norton Fitzwarren, which isn't even where I live. I had to get. I, I lived too far away. They'd got like a I don't know, like a three mile radius that the the limousine could go to, so I had to be taken halfway there. And then it's probably the only time a stretch limos I've ever been seen in the office. Well, well, stretch limos couldn't make the corners round where by where you live, could that, they? That's true. Down on the Matt. Somerset levels, yeah, they might have got yeah might have got a bit bogged down. Anyway, I fear that we're getting bogged down in nightclubs, but I've enjoyed that. Uh, let's instead, I bet I bet Liz Truss likes a nightclub. Um, let's talk about Liz Truss being a patriot. She, that's what she argued uh, yesterday. Uh, she said the reason she was putting forward the bill uh, to tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, in part was because. I'm a patriot, she said. Is that is that a good enough defence, David? Well, I'm a patriot and a Democrat. If you remember, it was in response to Hillary Benn. Hillary Benn had said, I bet you didn't think when you were a Liberal Democrat that you'd end up in a situation like this suggesting a, a, a palpably uh, internationally illegal act as a result of trying to get over a problem with uh, a policy that you yourself uh, helped sell. Um, to which she immediately retorted, I'm doing it because I'm a patriot and a democrat um which seemed a bit kind of odd. I'm, I, I'm only putting this in there not because i expect anything to come from what the government's uh, uh strange uh, protocol uh changes are going to be because at the moment the eu is just sitting down there thinking well let's let's see what happens with this as with everything else with this government i mean chances are it will be withdrawn within the next six months or nine months or there'll be a rebellion there's there's not very much point but from the point of view of assessing liz trust herself as a character and i'd be very interested to hear what matthew thinks about this uh, and so on it was really kind of i mean it is everything these days is a bit of an audition isn't it david lord david frost auditions continuously for some kind of job in the future conservative party liz trust is probably 
the leading candidate to take over from Boris Johnson should the uh, should the inevitable and when the inevitable happens to him and so on. Did you read this, Matthew, as a kind of um, her kind of Martin Luther moment for the Tory party? <laughs> She's pinning her thesis on the church door. Yes, uh, th there's a lot of uh, hidden competition going on. She's a bit worried about Ben Wallace as well. So every time Ben Wallace says, oh, if we win, uh, we'll um, we'll cut Putin into little pieces, she'll say, oh, and then we'll stamp on the little pieces. And then, then Ben Wallace <laughs> will say, that then we'll have show trials. And <laughs> and it go, they're each sort of bidding the other one up. The, the idea of replying that the reason that you're doing something is because you're a patriot is... Oh, I, I just, I just despair. <laughs> I suppose the thing is, it, it, it's you're, you're right, David. Is that the um, uh, it's all? It's not really about the law, or really about whether or not this solves the Northern Ireland Protocol. In fact, it doesn't even seem to be getting the DUP back into Stormont, which is supposed to be the main reason for doing it. It's all for show. Everything is for show. Everything's for show. Dominic Cummings famously said about Boris Johnson, we've repeated a couple of times, that every, with Boris Johnson, everything is, rever is reversible and everything will be reversed. Um, and it seemed to me that that for once was a very kind of... Uh, uh, um, a very perceptive notion of how of how this government how this government works and because this thing won't work it is essentially what we've come to call performative um but the thing i was wondering uh matt if you wouldn't mind me uh, uh taking over your job for a moment and asking matthew this matthew you spent a lot of time you may do still as far as i know going to conservative associations etc and i don't know opening fates or gay tory nightclubs or whatever it is that they, that they do and so on is somebody like Liz Trust somebody that they will warm to and will support? Do you know, I honestly don't know. I, I, I've left the Conservative Party, so that's the end of my, my days of going to Tory functions. I used to like Tory functions. I like members of the Conservative Party nationwide. They're, they're good, well-meaning people, mostly. They do come from a certain class, but they're... Uh, they're, they're not exactly inclusive, but they're, they're the the people who might be doing the bring and buy sale, and they might be a a, J, a local justice of the peace or whatever. And I've always thought of them as rather rather steady, careful people. And I I I don't actually believe that Liz Truss will appeal to the to these people. I think it's all a bit desperate on her part. But but she, apart from being herself, she's also a cipher. For, 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 the, for the right, for the populist right in the party. And I guess if you're populist right, you just have to decide which of the populist right candidates you want to support. Would it be Liz Truss? Might it be Dominic Raab? Who, who knows? Uh, it, but the, the thought that Liz Truss, I think, would have huge appeal in um, county towns yeah. and local conservative associations, I, I, I'm doubtful. We'll see. The, the idea of a face-off between the Trussites and the rabble is really something to <laughs> contemplate. Yes. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that debate? I mean, wouldn't you want to chair it as a journalist? <laughs> <laughs> just the it would just be a, an hour of just panicked looks. Uh, the pair of them they don't hide. You know, when when slightly caught out, they're not very good at um, you know poker facing a difficult question. You would mention Dominic Cummings. Dominic Cummings described uh, Liz Truss's as close to pro properly crackers as anyone he'd met in Parliament. 
which is against uh, some considerable competition. The other thing is that YouGov, it was only a couple of weeks ago, YouGov did a poll of Conservative Party members. And actually the most striking thing was how they just don't know. 12% Ben Wallace, 11% Liz Truss, 10% Jeremy Hunt, 8% Penny Morden, 7% Rishi Sunak and Mark Grove, all the way down. Uh, uh, the um, most popular choice with 16% was none of the above. And actually, that, I, I, that's one I of the bet things. Richard Bergen, I bet Richard Bergen would have got 10% if somebody put him on that list. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, I, I can just remember when Margaret Thatcher was uh, uh, elected as leader of the Conservative Party, and she wasn't the obvious candidate, and there wasn't an obvious candidate then, or if there was, it was you know, Willie Whitelaw, the old Home Secretary, somebody like that. I, I think un, until a leadership election crystallises people's thoughts, mm. it, it, it will be the case that there isn't any obvious yeah. successor. Mm. So I don't accept the argument that Boris Johnson must stay because there isn't any obvious successor. Uh, come if the hour will come, the man or woman. Right, let's turn our attention then to uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, former Foreign Secretary William Hague's written in The Times today saying that there should be no peace deal to be made with Putin. And they... He explained why he thought that at Times Radio earlier. If you actually do surveys in countries, and there was mm. one two weeks ago, uh, you find that in, in many countries like Italy or France and Germany, really large proportions of people would say, well, we'd rather make concessions to Russia and get peace that way than fight on for justice for Ukraine. And I'm really pointing out that, well, while one can argue the merits of that, Peace is not available with Putin. There isn't a durable peace treaty that could be created between Ukraine and, and Vladimir Putin that would last. And so actually there is no alternative but to slog on with this and to support the Ukrainians with whatever it takes for them to be able to preserve a functioning country. Is he right, Matthew Paris? No. I, I think this is un, unwise language. He's right that the shape of any possible peace deal is definitely not clear at the moment. I, I don't think there's enough. There isn't a landing landing zone, as, as people say. But in the end, there's going to have to be a deal, and the deal's going to have to be with Russia, whoever is the, uh, whoever, ever is the boss. It may be Putin, it may be his successor. What does William mean that, that there can be no deal? Does he, does he mean that the war just continues and, and, and until the Russians sort of crawl away and say, hold up white flags and say, we, we admit defeat? They, they aren't going to do that. And, and when it comes to the end of a war, you, you do need ladders for people to climb down. So I, I think a deal in the end will have to be made and, and that Ukraine will have to make some perhaps very modest concessions in order to save just a little bit of Russian pride or we're simply storing up future geopolitical conflicts with, with, with a, a, a defeated, humiliated, crushed, angry and, and, um, and uh, uh, untrusting Russia. What do you think, David? Because there's clearly a, the, the implication of we cannot do a deal with Putin at all is that this goes on and on and he keeps blowing up shopping centres and schools and whatever else. Well, the first thing to say is it's not going to be down to us. So um, yeah. we have a, 
uh, we have a, a, it seems to me, a binary choice. You either support uh, Ukraine or you don't. Uh, and you support them uh, as far as they can uh, go, or you don't support them as far as they can go. We can't, uh, as far as I can see, you can't say we're going to cease that kind of support and we're going to put pressure upon you to come to an accommodation with an aggressive power, which will simply rearm and come back at you again, uh, unless you have essentially fought it to a, a standstill. Um, now, of course, the cost of all this is absolutely astronomical. It's terrible, it's terrifying, but unfortunately it is not our choice. Um, and it won't be our choice either in that sense to to, to end it. Uh, so I don't see any alternative. So I think, uh, if I understand William Hay correctly, I don't see any alternative but to continue until the Russians decide of their own accord um, uh, uh, with the Ukrainians that they have had enough uh, and that there is going to be some kind of uh, of ending to this. To, to me, as far as uh, absolutely the optimal ending is that Russia goes back to the borders that were agreed between it and Ukraine. And that's the, uh, and that's the optimum outcome. And I don't think we should be holding out for anything else. Uh, and I certainly don't think that we who went to fight for the bloody Falklands, after all, in 1982, should be telling other people about this territorial sacrifices that we think it necessary for them to make. Yes, I'm, I'm not I'm not with you all the way there. David, you, you say it's none of our business. Uh, it is. We're paying the piper uh, here. It is with Western support that Ukraine is able to carry on. So I think I think the rest of the West is entitled to have a view on what sort of shape the end of this war might take. No, I didn't say it's not our business. It's very much our business. I said we don't have very much alternative about what... Uh, uh, we don't have many choices in what the alternatives are. Um, uh, the idea that we would essentially say to the Ukrainians, you've got to settle now and give the Russians a big section of your territory, otherwise the Russians will feel humiliated, is not either a practical strategy, why would the Ukrainians t uh, uh, take it, etc., um, nor would we want to implement it if that appeared to be or was actually a Ukrainian defeat in the, in the eyes of aggression. So it just, all I'm saying, Matthew, is it's not really a choice that we have. Um, it's very much our business, but unfortunately, our business here is very much a matter of supporting. Yes, we, we must support. Uh, 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 and and for the moment, I don't think the, the shape of any possible uh, peace deal is clear. But I don't think we should use language that suggests that we don't want a deal. We just want the complete humiliation uh, of Russia. What would that in, entail? OK, uh, Russia is forced back. Uh, to where they were, there there is a a, a kind of uh, humiliating admission of defeat by Russia. Does that mean we think that the Russians won't then try to rearm and regroup and come back again, angrier than ever? They are uh, a pretty hooligan country at, at the moment. We're going to have to deal with that for the rest of this century. The important thing, once a deal is reached, and there will be a deal in the end, once a deal is reached, the important thing is that Ukraine is given the, the support, the guarantees and the means to defend themselves against any future Russian attack. That, that's all we can do. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. We don't, we don't, we're not going to get round to Prince Charles's suitcases. Um, <laughs> we'll Typical that. lick spittle pro monarchist situation. <laughs> you knew what we were going to say. Yeah. And you <laughs> all right, then, very quickly, is it all right if uh, Prince Charles is taking a million pounds in a suitcase? David? <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Matthew. Fine. Absolutely fine. There we are, all, you see. All for a good cause. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was Matthew Powis and David Ornish there. And of course, you can meet them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, should we move the capital out of London? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now, it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, so this is something that's been mulling over our minds for a little while now. Should we move the capital out of London? Remember this? Source for the ermine goose is surely source for the plebeian gander. That was Lord Young of Cookham, speaking in the House of Lords a couple of weeks ago. Furious at Michael Gove's idea of moving peers to Stoke-on-Trent. He was there arguing if the move goes ahead, MPs and the Commons should move as well. The government, in response, said levelling up is central to the government's mission. And the government would welcome the House of Lords playing a leading role in that effort. Peers relocating out of London during the decant, as in the, uh, as while they do the refurbing panel, would not only be a powerful symbol, but a very practical way to boost local economies and ensure that lawmakers could hear directly from those beyond the capital. But is this a good idea? London is overheating. It's already the political, economic, cultural capital of the UK, which isn't the case in lots of other countries. So is it time to move the capital itself out of London? Well, we asked YouGov to poll the general public to find out if they think this is a good idea. Would they support moving the capital out of London? And if so, where should it go? Matthew Smith is head of data journalism at YouGov, who conducted the poll for us and joins me now. Hi, Matt. Hi there, Matt. How's it going? Yeah, not bad at all. So... Uh, talk us through the figures. Is, do, does this have public support? Uh, absolutely not. I'm afraid this is definitely one <laughs> of the uh, the less uh, popular uh, policy measures we've uh, we've we've asked about. Uh, so only about one in six people, that's 16 percent of the po- of the population, support uh, moving uh, London to another city. Uh, sorry, not moving London, moving the capital to another city in the UK. Uh, that's as opposed to uh, more than 60 percent who think it should stay where it is, uh, and that's. Uh, uh, we asked about this also back in 2018. And that's only like a very small fractional increase in the number of people who think the, the, the capital should move. So anything anyone said about the benefits of moving uh, London over the last few years have fallen on deaf ears. 
However, there was a bit of a division, wasn't there, between uh, men and women in different parts of the country. I was quite surprised because normally with these things, if you ask a question like this, it's pretty even right across all demographics. But there was a bit of change on this, wasn't it? <laughs> Uh, so uh, obviously there are definitely uh, geographical uh, differences. So uh, unsurprisingly, London is at least keen on uh, the capital uh, uh, on London itself losing uh, capital status, uh, and uh, Northerners and Scots are more enthusiastic. But even still, it's still a very minority view in the north and Scotland. Only one in five people uh, support moving the capital. Most people in the North don't. Um, twice as many Scots oppose as, as support moving it. When it comes to men and women, men are more likely. I'm not really sure that reflects any specific <laughs> uh, view so much as perhaps men have a sort of tendency to do more um, impulsive and, uh, <laughs> you know, bold uh, That's things. interesting. Is, is, that a sort of, is that a sort of a, a thing you see in polling that, that women are perhaps a bit more cautious, sensible? Yeah. I, I would say so, and, and also uh, a general um, thing among men that uh, they, they, they tend to they tend to uh, they tend to come up with answers on the spot, whereas women tend to be more cautious and reserved and, and, and more likely to say don't know if they uh, if if they if they're not if they hadn't thought about an issue uh, so deeply. And what about um, you, we also asked uh, where should we move the capital if it did move out of London? Which places came out top? Sure. So Manchester's the top contender, but again, only only a quarter of people um, support doing so. Uh, so not even support doing so. Only a quarter of people would be happy to see Manchester become the capital if the decision had already been made. Uh, then Birmingham comes next, and then uh, but again, still we're only talking about one in five people. Uh, even in the north, again, you're only looking at a third of people who think who would be happy to see Manchester come top. Uh, and then obviously you, you get into sort of um, regional rivalries uh, there as well. So basically, uh, pe people are more, uh, you know people are relatively happy to see their own local big city become the capital. But um, uh, there's no sort of united front against London, if you will. Yes, I was quite. Um, uh, it was interesting because even if we even if we'd asked what's Britain's second city, I suspect mm. Manchester and Birmingham would have uh, would have been fight oh, absolutely. fighting. Absolutely, and indeed. And indeed we have, and that is exactly what happens. Uh, there's a split between the two, and it depends on basically whether you're from the Midlands or from the North. And that's, um, yeah, and that's that's an entirely different battle. Uh, Matthew, thank you for that. That's Matthew uh, Smith from YouGov, who conducted the poll for us. But let's take a step back now. The fact that the UK's got its cultural, economic and political institutions all in one place isn't necessarily unique. But there are many other developed countries that have managed to spread theirs around. For instance... You know, if you look at America, we've got Washington, Washington D.C., big political base, New York's big financial base, L.A., you could argue is a cultural, at least one of the cultural base. Uh, and so power is spread around. And then in Australia, it's Canberra. It's the seat of political power rather than Sydney or Melbourne. And after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Germany conducted one of the most famous, almost examples of levelling up ever, spreading the wealth of the West into the East and moving the capital. So we asked the Times' Berlin correspondent, Oliver Moody, to explain. When Germany was reunified in 1990, the Houses of Parliament, the Federal Ministries and many of the other organs of state were still based in the old West German capital, Bonn. After a brief but pretty intense debate about having two de facto capitals, like the Netherlands, the Bundestag narrowly voted to move the seat of government back to Berlin. It was a fairly monumental and expensive exercise, involving the rebuilding of the Reichstag building, the construction of a vast 600 million euro complex for the Chancellery, and the restoration of about 150 embassies. And it still isn't over. Today, six of the ministries, including the Defence and Health Departments, still have their headquarters in Bonn, 
meaning that thousands of civil servants still fly back and forth across Germany every week. That was Oliver Moody explaining what goes on in uh, Germany. So how is it that London became so powerful in the first place? Uh, let's speak now to uh, Dr. Jack Brown. Uh, Dr. Jack Brown, even. Oh, posh. Uh, lecturer of London Studies at King's College in London. Morning, Jack. Morning, Matt. Thanks for calling me posh. I didn't realise you were a doctor. I've been. I've, only, I've just called you me a Jack the whole time. Well, uh, don't ask for any help with any medical problems. No, no, it's not a proper. No, you're not a proper doctor. Uh, you're like uh, Dr. Dre. Uh, so why is why is London the capital? What is it? You know, how far back do we go that it, that that has been the case? Well, we go back over a couple of thousand years, and I think that's what's really interesting um, in comparison to the examples you just gave, right? The USA, you're absolutely right. Australia and and Germany, they're all they've got two things in common, I guess. They're federal countries, and we're not. We're a very centralised country, so we kind of are governed from one point. You know, lots of our decisions are made nationally; they're made centrally, and so they would be kind of one capital. Uh, but they're, they're also sort of younger countries. Um, but both in the case of the USA and Australia, they had a kind of a big federal moment where they decided where the nation's capital was going to be and they kind of put it somewhere that was politically fairly neutral after lots of debate and of course germany has its own specific history um, so it's the fact that we're a much sort of longer sort of unbroken constitution in this country that's a big part of the reason why london has been the capital for so long and does that so does that go back to sort of royalty then the the, the monarch being based in london or thereabouts uh, and so and particular proximity to power being so important that that's why you know then as the democracy emerged that's why parliament was here and then you know money follows power and that's that's you know particularly i suppose pre high speed trains or the mm -hmm. internet or whatever it might be that actually being physically near the other people uh who are powerful and uh, rich that's what that's that's a sort of natural human instinct it's a natural human instinct it's also what uh, economists would call sort of agglomeration benefits right you know this is what makes cities people wanting to be close to each other different types of power wanting to be close to each other as well and all the economic opportunity that that creates but you said money following power i think actually weirdly in london's case it's actually power following money uh, the romans first established sort of a bit after 43 ad um a city londinium which is now roughly sort of um the same site and location as the city of london they established a trading center there on the banks of the Thames. Thames was really good for trade. And it's kind of stayed there ever since. And actually, it's not until sort of the mid-11th century that you get royalty moving over to set up a, a centre of, of royal and religious power to the west of that city, hence Westminster. And that's when you get the royals there. Um, and as power over gradually, over hundreds and hundreds of years, transfers from kind of unelected monarch to elected politicians they obviously have to be close to the king or queen in fact the king or queen used to attend cabinet right so you know it's kind of one thing until uh, as our constitution gradually evolves so you've had the kind of seat since at least the mid um, 11th century a seat of political power first religious then through the monarch then through politics um just down the road from a centre of financial power, which is the city of London today. And because those two things are so close together, it kind of gets filled in over years, becomes one coherent city 
called London. But I guess, again, I'd return to this point that we haven't had one moment where we sat down and planned where the capital would be. It's kind of evolved gradually, like our constitution, over thousands of years. And that's how we've ended up in this situation. And when you're all looking at London studies now, is the capital as it is changing? Um, and we've seen, I mean, one of the, you know, we've seen, you know, the BBC moved a lot of its uh, staff to Manchester, to Salford. And actually, now, if you go to Salford, it's not just the BBC there. You know, ITV have moved all of their uh, studios down the, you know, Coronation Street. And all that. You know, there's a whole, there is now actually a sort of cultural hub uh, as a result of that. So it, it, it feels oh, yes. like that sort of thing is possible, but you do need a critical mass or a massive player to, I don't know, a, a massive uh, bank to move out of the city of London, out of the window here and, and head to, I don't know, York or Leeds, whatever it might be, in order for others others to follow. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of banks. There's, you know, Edinburgh's a big financial centre. There's yeah, plenty of, of big, big banks in, in Birmingham. There's big banks, all sorts of places. But what worked about the BBC moving to Salford, to Media City, is that they set up a thing called Media City. So it wasn't just going to be the BBC just you know a few people who are broadly in the public sector moving to the middle of nowhere it was part of a wider uh, development that was going to bring in private sector jobs as well and it was a kind of coherent whole if you think about something like i don't know the dvlas in the news a little bit at the moment you know moving that out of the capital hasn't necessarily made it incredibly more efficient or led <laughs> to a massive rebirth of local jobs i mean if you moved the house of lords where did you mention stoke on trent yeah, that was that was uh, one idea floated by Michael Gove. York was mentioned before. Yeah. If you just move the House of Lords there, I'm not entirely sure that, that there's lots of complementary other Houses of Lords in the private sector that are going to move <laughs> in and do little startups and, you know, leads to a huge economic boom. So it's a kind of, it's a different thing. There's, there's times that it can work and there's times that it, it might not work. And I guess um, particularly moving the capital, moving Parliament or moving the, the Lords, etc. It's an idea we've been talking about for hundreds of years. It's very expensive and nobody's decided to do it yet. Perhaps there's a reason. Jack Brown, Dr. Jack Brown, no less. Uh, lecturer of uh, London <laughs> Studies at King's College London. Really good to speak to you. Uh, you might recognise, we, we, we heard from Jack last week. Jack and I went down to Downing Street to uh, look at the history of uh, Downing Street and how that came about being the, uh, the Prime Minister's uh, official home. Good to speak to Jack there. Lots of you already getting in touch. Uh, what happened to the roving cabinet idea? Debates could be held in areas of particular interest in the topic, says Philip. Uh, Richard says, rather than wasting money moving the capital, how about saving some money by reducing the number of the two chambers? 600 MPs and 300 peers. Uh, and someone else on Twitter says, perhaps the uh, point of celebrating other UK cities with a temporary Capital City Award is to host events and traditions to increase the equal share of wealth, employment and benefits to that region. London's wealth is institutional and for many impossible to exist within it. Uh, somebody else saying, uh, isn't York already the capital? This idea of maybe having a different capital city is one we've discussed off and on over the past couple of weeks. But is London ready to start relinquishing some of its power? Here's what the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, told me recently. Well, I think there should be enough for everybody. Where's the, course of, where's the choice of one or the other? You know, you know, that's fine. It's really important, I think, by the way, for parliamentarians to spend more time out of London at the national parliamentarians. Uh, you know, I look forward to the, the, the second city you're talking about, have decided who that second city is. I'm looking forward to the fisticuffs between <laughs> Liverpool, Bristol and Sheffield and Glasgow and, uh, uh, you know, Cardiff. Uh, that would be fun to watch and Leeds and stuff. But listen, I think it's really important to recognise it's not London versus the rest. It's London and the rest. We've got a, a, you know, an equal partnership relationship with other parts of the country. Uh, I think it's really important 
to understand that the capital city has a big role to play in the success of our country, not just economically, but socially and culturally as well. Uh, I, I think some of our politicians nationally, uh, and including some politicians in the north, uh, sometimes don't understand uh, that the way to make our country more equal shouldn't be making them poorer. It should be devolving more powers and resources and people to all parts of the country, including London. London is the most unequal region in the uh, country. So just be careful what you wish for. And, you know, both in terms of the politics, we've seen how the Tories got trounced in May in London and the South, but also in terms of our economy, our culture and our social way of life. Just be careful uh, about bashing London too much. Uh, that was London Mayor Sadiq Khan throwing in a whole load of other names. Bristol, Sheffield, Glasgow, Cardiff, Leeds as alternatives. Uh, second City it was Manchester, Liverpool and Birmingham that came top in our poll. Uh, well, now let's hear from Lisa Nandy. She's Labour's sh- shadow levelling up secretary. She's also the MP for Wigan. She says she's supportive of levelling up. When I spoke to her, I asked her if she was in favour of moving the capital out of London. Well, it depends what you mean, I guess. Um, I mean, moving power and resources out of London is definitely a good idea. It's probably the only way to make Britain work because at the moment the concentration of power and decision making in a very small number of hands is one of the biggest problems that the country has. It means we get the wrong decisions, we get money spent badly, we get lack of investment in lots of places that could make a contribution if they if they were able to and had the backing of their government. Um, But if you mean just moving a load of MPs and Lords into other parts of the country, I suspect I'm with most of the country, really. I don't particularly want a load of MPs and Lords in my local. Um, I'm interested in moving the power, not just in moving the people. Do you think that other countries where... Uh, it's not just sort of political power, but, you know, business centres, cultural centres are spread uh, around the country. Do you think that they function better? Are they fairer? Yeah, I think if you look at the decisions that have been made in Britain compared to a country like Germany, where I spent quite a bit of time looking at the sort of levelling up efforts that went on in um, East Germany in particular, it's clear that the closer that you move power to people the better decisions that you get but you don't have to go across the world to see that you can see it here in Britain in Grimsby for example where you've got kids from East Grimsby powering the world now from the Grimsby docks that investment came because you had a regional development agency full of people who lived in Yorkshire who made decisions on the basis of what was best long term for people in Yorkshire and as a consequence you've got these amazing jobs putting money into people's pockets and firing their local economy so we've done it here in Britain before it can be done but it means that you have to move power and resources out and there are other things that the government could be doing as well Michael Gove was reportedly running around trying to get um, George Osborne and Tristram Hunt and others to consider setting up outposts of big national London-based institutions like the National Theatre and the V&A in the north of England. But we've got our own institutions. What we don't have is fair levels of funding and backing for them. You know, there's a reason why someone like Maxine Peake starred in The Queens of the Coal Age, which was a Royal Exchange production. Um, that wouldn't have been put on from London. It was put on here in the north of England because this is our culture, our history, our identity that we want to see reflected in the national story. And that's why it was such a popular production and such an important contribution. You won't get that contribution just by asking more people from one small corner of the country to make more decisions. 
Is there a danger that the levelling up is well, increasingly seems like a process of, hello, we're from London. Uh, uh, we bring you, I don't know, a painting from London or maybe some jobs, but some people are going to move here from London and then you, therefore you're going to feel much more levelled up. Well, I think that's exactly why the people that you spoke to don't really just want to move the capital because th- these are our assets, our potential, the contribution that we can make. You know, if you look at advanced manufacturing in Rotherham, one of the great success stories of British industry, the reason that advanced manufacturing is based in Rotherham is because of the legacy of skills from the steel cutting industry. This is the contribution that we have to make. We don't just want people to come north from London to give us a little bit more of what they do this country can only succeed and start firing on all cylinders if we're able to contribute much more of what only we can do. Interestingly, looking at the poll, uh, one in five, 20% of Labour voters, uh, double uh, the the 10% for the Tories and Lib Dems, uh, 20% of Labour voters do like the idea of moving the capital out of London. So maybe you're, you're sort of you're tapping into something already. What more do you think the Labour Party needs to do? Real life, concrete plans to sort of tap into this feeling that the government's levelling up is clearly a very popular idea. The government seems to be failing to sort of turn it into reality at the moment. What What is it a sort of big on the doorstep idea that you can offer people as the Labour Party? Well, since it's um, the Matt Chorley show, uh, I might float an idea that I was discussing with some friends the other day about reopening a nightclub in every town across Britain. Every single town has lost a nightclub that they feel very strongly about that was part of our history and our heritage. You know, in Wigan here, we had Northern Soul um, and we miss all of that greatly. Um, so we were sort of joking the other day about whether we could get have a referendum in each town about which nightclub would be reopened <laughs> to try and reinvigorate and kickstart regeneration across the whole of England. But on a serious note, um, but no, but, but there's get... an interesting question there, isn't there? Because that that sort of sense of place and uh, um, community. I mean, I'm going back to Taunton in a couple of weeks' time because when I was growing up, I was a teenager in, early, in my early twenties. I was part of a group called Weekender. We used to put on bands and DJ nights, and we're having a re- we're having a reunion like 20 years on. And all of the places where we used to do those things have shut. So now we're having to have the reunion in an old British Legion function room because there's no. Uh, you know, there's a whole generation of people not having that. But but so is there something that you could, maybe there's something you could do in practical terms about, is it to do with regulation or business rates or something so that some of those venues could come back? Yeah, well, we're already doing it here in Greater Manchester. So a few years ago, Andy Burnham commissioned UK Music to look at how to re- Um, sort of ignite the most amazing music scene in Manchester, which we've had for a long time. And I rang him up and said, you've got to come to Wigan, you've got to come to Bury, you've got to come to Bolton, because we've got our own contribution that we make here. And he he did, he listened, he sent the, the commissioners of that report over across Greater Manchester to see the contribution that different towns have made. And one of the things that they found was that the live music venues that used to sustain bands like The Verve, who come from Wigan, who could like gig and play around Wigan, not just have to travel into Manchester to do it, those things have disappeared in the last couple of decades. And we're going to start rebuilding them here in Greater Manchester to show the difference that we can make if we start investing in our people, the return that you get. So there is a serious point behind this because as well as 
providing those opportunities for young people from every part of the country and the culture and the history and the identity that goes with it. It means that we're reflected in the national story. That's the tragedy of government decisions like the decision to privatise Channel 4. Channel 4 is the public broadcaster that invests the most outside of London and the South East. They didn't just move the production of their programmes, they moved the commissioning power as well. So what gets made is determined and driven by people in every part of this country and the government is taking the axe to it. So I think arts and culture has to be absolutely central to this story. It's not just a dry technical debate about more mayors or not more mayors. It's about making sure that every part of this country has the chance to contribute again. Just finally, Lisa and Andy, uh, in this poll, we asked if uh, if not London, where would you uh, rather have the capital city? Uh, 19% said Birmingham, 25% said Manchester. Where, where would you opt for? Just not Wigan is my plea. I don't want a load of lords in Ermin and a load of MPs sitting in my local pub. Thank you very much. <laughs> Birmingham would do me nicely. Uh, Lisa Dandy, there, Labour's shadow levelling up secretary, um, talking about the prospect of moving the capital out of London, but definitely not to uh, Wigan. But what about uh, what about the right uh, of politics? What is the answer to levelling up? Adam Hawksby is head of levelling up at the centre right think tank onwards. Adam, nice to have you with us. Uh, where do you stand on? I mean, only sixteen percent support the idea of moving uh, the capital out of uh, London. Um, do you think moving bits of London elsewhere help? So I think it's important to go back to what the public hear when they hear levelling up. And when we do focus groups around the country, a lot of people very quickly say, well, a big part of that is about closing the North-South divide. They very quickly then say, but we don't want to be like the South. And by that, they often mean that the social fabric of the places they live in, they feel like they've got more of a sense of community, of belonging in their place. And so they want London's maybe economic growth or wealth. But what they don't want is what they perceive as a sort of atomization or feeling like you don't know and don't chat to your neighbours. And so how do you get that economic growth? I think actually moving the capital city is not a particularly good way to do that. It's going to take a really long time to build some of those clusters outside of London. It's better to go with the grain of what already exists. So I live in Birmingham. Let's take that as an example. You've got a rapidly growing professional services financial cluster. Goldman Sachs, HSBC have just moved there. How about we go with the grain there and try and grow those areas, rebalance investment, empower local leaders like Andy Street, as opposed to taking a fairly uh, blunt approach. And um, do you think that the Conservative government know what levelling up is? I mean, it's obviously a good phrase. It seems to resonate. You know, the Labour Party say they're in favour of it. They just think the Conservatives don't know what it means. Do you think they're getting towards the point of, of coming up with some policies that might actually have an impact? So I think it was a really clear articulation of it in the white paper that was released kind of three or four months ago. It feels like an age ago now, but, but fairly recently. And there was a good uh, direction that was pointed to by, by both the Prime Minister and by, by Michael Gove. The challenge is actually delivering on that. And the, the big problem is it's got to be the whole of government. Lisa Nandy talks about the example in, in Germany, where it was a whole government effort to try and focus investment um, and interventions in places that were struggling. And in the context of Ukraine and some of the political challenges recently, it's been really difficult for government to actually focus on what they're going to need to do now, looking down the barrel of an election coming up, is to actually get some of those interventions happening on the ground so voters can see and feel, touch and taste what levelling up looks like in their patch. Adam, really good to speak to you. Adam Hawksby there, head of levelling up at the centre-right think tank onwards in Birmingham. That's levelling up for you. Uh, so many of you have been in touch about this. Beth says, heavens no, London is big enough 
Uh, the, unless you go down to Westminster Whitehall where there's loads, you mostly won't notice the politician in amongst the crowds. Move the politicians anywhere else. And they'll just oversaturate the place and ruin a previously good city. Uh, someone else on the text says, really don't believe that moving the capital will provide any major benefit to its new location. Instead, targeted beneficial arrangements around taxation, flooding facilities to artists and some subsidies would do a much better job. And Paul in Wolverhampton said, a lecturer in London studies at the University of London argues against moving power out of London. I'm shocked. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.